Let us listen together for the word of God as it comes to us in the 13th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, beginning with the 10th verse. Now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up straight. And when Jesus saw her, he called over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. When he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, There are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger, and lead it away to give it water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When he said this, all his opponents were put to shame, and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things that he was doing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O God, open us to your grace, your love, and your healing ways as we reflect upon your word this day. Amen. I've had this recurring dream since my childhood. I'm standing on a hilltop in the middle of a low valley. Stony, wooded mountains surround me like a crown of rock and leaf placed upon the brow of the earth. It's a cloudy afternoon, but not dull and gray. The clouds have movement and texture. Filaments lacing down from the higher altitudes caress the mountaintops. It's a place of wondrous natural beauty. And though it's foreign to me, I can also sense in a dreamlike way that this is the same valley in which I was born and raised just a short drive from where we stand today. It's my home, but somehow strangely transfigured, as if the two places, different in terrain and flora, share the same ground of being, or as if this is a primordial version of the place where I was raised. I can't quite make sense of it, but in the dream, I can feel that years of memories and experiences connect me to the land, even though it is unrecognizable to my eyes. As I stand on that low hilltop in the middle of the valley, the earth beneath me begins to rumble. 
quiet at first, but building, building, until the entire ground begins to quake. Birds fly up from the trees like a great shadow, filling the air with their frantic cries. As my eyes are drawn toward the horizon where mountain and sky meet, I see it. A menacing, towering wall of water crashes over the mountaintop and begins its catastrophic avalanche into the valley where I stand. My heart begins to beat out of control. The sound of its destructive approach is deafening beyond anything I've heard in this world. The enormous wall of water moves with such speed and force that nothing can impede it. And as it rushes toward me, I take one final, desperate gasp of air, and then I wake up. For what it's worth, I blame my fundamentalist upbringing and too many Roland Emmerich disaster movies for such apocalyptic dreams. My young imagination was far too concerned with the end of the world, God's final judgment of creation. That great wave, that apocalyptic vision, it still haunts my dreams today, though without the same force of terror. Now, whenever that dream happens upon me today, I see it as a call to action. The most recent IPCC report, the Inter Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, indicates that human activity, industry, extraction, and pollution is the primary driving force of climate change. We're already experiencing the effects of climate change all around us, but the truly catastrophic effects are yet to come. Even under the best case scenario projections, at this point, climate change will continue to increase into at least the middle of the century before it starts to decline somewhere in the 2080s. That means my generation's children and grandchildren will reap a world where extreme weather events and rising sea levels, not to mention the myriad humanitarian crises that occur as a result, will worsen during their adult years. That's the best case scenario, according to the IPCC. The report pulls no punches in warning us that we have only a limited amount of time to change course. If we don't, humanitarian and ecological devastation will likely eradicate any semblance of equitable human life. Our window of opportunity is closing fast. In the words of the remarkable youth climate activist Greta Thunberg, quote, as long as we do not treat this crisis as a crisis, and as long as the facts and science are left completely ignored, then we will not be able to solve this crisis. We need to understand the urgency of the situation and to see it from a holistic point of view, end quote. She goes on to say that we need to act as if the house is on fire because it is. This, frankly, dire situation has led to a recognized psychological condition in a portion of young people today. It's a condition called climate grief, which is a state of severe depression, despair, hopelessness, and exhaustion 
exhibited by those who recognize that the world they are inheriting will prove unlivable for them and their children unless we take swift and drastic action. Beloved, I know that this is a hard word, but it's one that we desperately need to hear if we are to be a people who are sober, soberly, not just sentimentally, but soberly committed to nurturing goodness and justice and beauty on this wondrous and waning ember we call Earth. Into this crucial moment, we are confronted once again by the word of God, which presses in on our reality with the force of a tsunami that washes away our blindness and indifference, floods our souls with compassion, and carries us to horizons of hope we could never imagine. Here in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath. In walks a woman bent by years upon years of chronic pain. At the sight of her, Jesus instantly liberates her from her illness. Woman, you are set free from your ailment. Suddenly, the vertebrae that were fused in her spine loosen. The blood flows freely once again. Her muscles that were once painfully constrained are now relaxed, opening her body to a range of movement that she has not known since her youth. Imagine the joy that rushes into her soul in that moment. All the ways that life had been denied her those 18 long years are reversed in an instant. To hold her grandchildren in her arms to enjoy the feasts and festivals of her people, to walk free from concerns of the body, and simply to enjoy the evening breeze. The overwhelming power of life has overcome the waking death that constrained her. This miracle story, this healing, is about so much more than managing pain. It's what pain denies us that makes it truly painful. Those of you, beloved, who suffer from chronic pain know that far too well. No, this miracle is about more than the immediate ailments of the body. It's about opening up a whole new way of life, an entirely unexpected horizon of hope for this dear child of God. Earlier in Luke's Gospel, Jesus proclaims that he has come to bring good news to the poor, release to the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, liberation for the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We'll return to that peculiar phrase in a moment, but for now, we see Jesus fulfilling this ministry by meeting the very earthy and mundane needs of this suffering woman. And then the other shoe drops. 
the leader of the synagogue steps in and condemns the miracle because it was performed on the Sabbath. Come any other day to be cured, but don't defile the Sabbath with your bothersome illnesses, we can imagine him saying. We might be tempted to scoff at his short-sightedness, but we moderns are often just as addicted to our rules and bylaws and capable of seeing the gracious reality, that horizon of hope that transcends our pernicious grasp on the status quo. As one biblical commentator puts it, quote, the synagogue leader has no capacity to enter into the thrill of the woman's restoration. End quote. I think that's a remarkable description, so I'm going to repeat it. The synagogue leader has no capacity to enter into the thrill of the woman's restoration. Jesus turns to the religious leaders, how dare you? You take better care of your animals than your people. Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? Set free from bondage. It's a somewhat curious thing to say. To our ears, it may sound like Jesus is being a touch extra as the kids say, about, a bit dramatic about things. But let's look a little closer. At the heart of this passage is a conflict over what it means to honor the Sabbath. The synagogue leader appears to be adhering to the letter of the law, as we heard it read by Jack, given to the ancient Israelites in the book of Exodus. But Jesus is enacting a fuller, more holistic vision of what Sabbath rest truly means. You see, in the Hebraic wisdom tradition, Sabbath was never merely intended as an individual pietistic discipline. Some of you may remember a time when going to the movies on Sundays was forbidden because it was, quote-unquote, the Lord's Day. That kind of fussy, legalistic, we might say constrained vision of what Sabbath rest offers humanity is exactly the kind of narrowness that clouds the vision of the synagogue leader. Instead, Jesus offers a different vision of the deep, reparative rest that Sabbath was always intended to provide. It is a rest that heals and transforms our relationships and our reality. It is a powerful discipline that ripples outward to repair ourselves, our neighbors, and our world. Remember how Jesus said he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that, that peculiar phrase? Well, that phrase has a very specific and important connotation in the history of Israel. The ancient people of God were to consecrate every seventh day. That is true. But the Sabbath pattern of rest was woven into the fabric of Israel's socio-political life. An event every seven days, an event every seven years, and finally, 
an event every seven times seven years, or roughly every 50 years. Every seven years, the Israelites were to let the land rest and lie fallow. At the same time, slaves and servants were to be freed from their bondage. Here we see a really remarkable ancient structure for ecological and humanitarian repair and transformation. But it gets even wilder. Once in a generation, there was to be a year known as the Year of Jubilee, also known as the Year of the Lord's Favor. This once-in-a-generation event brought the cancellation of all debts, the freeing of all slaves, and the return of all land to its original owners. Consider for a moment what this year would have been like for those Israelites who found themselves on the underside of the economic power structure during the Jubilee year. To be freed from bondage and debt and poverty, what a truly powerful moment in the life of the people. And I wonder, if something like that were to happen today, would we have the capacity to enter into the thrill of our neighbor's restoration? Biblical scholar David Jeffrey points out that this cycle of the remission of debt and bondage, quote, had long been forgotten in Israel despite the warning in the law that to fail to keep these elements of Sabbath law would leave Israel itself in suffering, without rest, end quote. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus comes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, not merely as a once-in-a-generation event, but as an abiding way of life that will define his followers. Sabbath rest in both its individual and societal dimensions is at the core of what faith is all about, according to Luke. Many of us today have been conditioned to be ashamed of rest. The productivity cult of our modern political economy tries to teach us that we are never off the clock, that every moment can be used to hustle and enrich, and grow. And yet, that logic of endless growth has left our planet on the brink of ruin. Before our modern economic structures were ever imagined, ancient wisdom seemed to intuit that the so-called invisible hand of the market would need to be slapped every once in a while, and that doing so would provide true reparative rest, not just for ourselves, but for our neighbors and our land. It's this vision of Sabbath rest that drives Jesus's healing in Luke's gospel. A fuller picture of what it means to bring repair and transformative peace into our world. I fully realize that it may be controversial to say this in front of a room full of Presbyterians who have been formed by the value of hard work that's entailed in the Protestant work ethic. 
But what if our primary calling on this earth isn't to work hard? What if our primary calling as God's people is to create the conditions for Sabbath? The earth is groaning for repair, healing, and rest. Our neighbors are crying out for repair, healing, and rest. Our souls are yearning for repair, healing, and rest. What horizon of hope might be revealed to us if we opened ourselves to the healing power of Sabbath rest? Beloved, there are no easy answers. But I am tempted to hope that we will find a way beyond the devastation we have created. A way toward hope and healing and justice and sustenance for all of God's creation. Contained within the pages of scripture, there is also a recurring dream. It's a dream of heaven coming to earth, where all wrongs are set right, where the people live in harmony with one another and the land, where human relationships are nurtured in the soil of collaboration and mutual care, where an earth bent and broken by years of bondage is set free to fullness of life, a world truly at rest. Beloved, may that be our dream. Amen.